Well, the purpose this evening is, of course, to look at the subject of the Messiah and focusing on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed to us in, in the prophecy of Isaiah. And the purpose of doing this is not just to do an exposition of a technical variety, but to help us have a better appreciation of our connection with the Lord Jesus Christ, what was achieved and how it was achieved and how we are connected with that. And also an appreciation of our Lord Jesus Christ and how he understood what he was to experience and yet the way that he approached that and the lessons that we can learn from that. Um, so we, we, we've chosen the theme of the Messiah, which is interesting because the word doesn't actually occur in the prophecy of Isaiah, but the principle of it does. Um, just benefit for the younger ones, I guess, um, and, and maybe a refresher for the older ones if they forget what the word Messiah means. Um, the word Messiah means anointed. So he is anointed. Um, and we see there the words Lord Jesus Christ that we see used in the New Testament and the word Christ in the, the title of the Lord Jesus Christ is that word anointed. Okay, so they're one in the same thing, one in the Greek origin, I guess, and one in the Hebrew. Um, and, and the word Lord, supreme in authority, and as we talked about last time, Jesus, Yah, is salvation. Um, so, so when we look at those three words that are used of our Lord in, in the New Testament, we see that is endowed on him authority. And we'll see that come through what God has entrusted to our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll also see that he is the anointed one, the chosen one, the one that has been sent and provided. In the New Testament, when um, the disciples were being called in John chapter 1, one of the two which heard John speak followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And we see in the New Testament that they were looking for the anointed one. And there in, um, in Acts 2, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so we can see here that it's God, God that initiated those titles. He made him both Lord and Christ. So God placed the Lord Jesus Christ in the position that he has, with the authority that he has. And he is the anointed one. So with that background, we'll, we'll just focus on some of the thoughts in Isaiah. We're just going to go firstly to Isaiah chapter 40. I'm just going to look at verses um, 1 to 5 there. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 to 5. Where Isaiah says to the people, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her, Warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for he, she hath received of Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hills shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh 
hath spoken it. Of course, that's what John revealed, wasn't it? That the Lord Jesus Christ was the one that was to come and that he was to be God with us. The glory of Yahweh would be revealed and all flesh would see it together. And so as the Lord Jesus Christ came upon the earth, the people were blessed to see God at work, as it were, to see the character of God revealed to them. And it was Yahweh that declared that. He spoke and it happened. And that is the anointing process, isn't it? And so as we go to Isaiah chapter 7, we see the outworking of that in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 13, 15. He said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. And so we see God is the instigator again. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we see in that process, in that verse, an incredible thing taking place, can't we? We we read these things so often, don't we, that sometimes they maybe don't have the impact that they do. A, A virgin would conceive. A miracle, isn't it? A miracle. And will bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And that was what God declared, wasn't it? That the Lord Jesus Christ would declare the glo- his glory, the glory of God amongst the people. Verse 15. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Butter and honey shall he eat. Of course, Emmanuel, that was recorded in in Matthew 1, wasn't it? That a virgin shall be with child and bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And that was at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 1 verse 23. Um, Butter and honey, what of those? Well, they can be a symbol of the prosperity of the land. Um, In Isaiah 7 And verse 22, it it talks about that in in this um, chapter we've probably got already open. Um, Verse 22, it says, And it shall come to pass for the abundance of milk that he shall give, he shall eat butter. For butter and honey shall everyone eat that is left in the land. And so it's a symbol of prosperity. And and butter, of course, comes from milk. So it's talking about that dairy, um, dairy product. And, and, of course, we know well, wasn't it, that the land would be flowing with milk and honey. That was the promise of God, wasn't it, to the people of Israel and Exodus. So it, it can talk about prosperity. But it can also talk about growth, can't it? As we've got on the screen there from First to Peter 2 and verse 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. And, of course, butter is really milk that's been activated, isn't it, that something's happening with it. Um, And and it is representative of desiring that milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And we note it's, it's Emmanuel, Emmanuel, that is eating these things. He is eating milk and honey. Um, 
We've got that Psalm 19. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, much finer than gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. And so the things of God are likened to the things of honey and the honeycomb. And what we are starting to understand here, that the Lord Jesus Christ, as he grew as a child, his knowledge of the word of God wasn't just bestowed on him miraculously. That the word of God became part of him because he made it part of himself. And that's important for us to to appreciate, I think, that we are like the Lord Jesus Christ. He was made of the same thing that we are. And we have the capacity, we are blessed with the word of God. We can read it as he did. We can make it part of our lives as he did. Of course, he was different to us because he was the son of God. And we know that we will fail. We know that we will fall short. We know we can't do everything that our Lord did. But we know that he is an example before us and that as he made the word part of his life, as, as he grew with it, that we can grow by the word of God as well. And so there is an example from him in that, um, in that sense. Uh, and no doubt those words would have rung true and would have been a motivating factor for our Lord to see that principle of butter and honey, that, that milk of the word, and how he would have desired it as a young young person and how he would have grown by it to move on to the, the things of the meat of the word, so to speak. Yes? It's strange. I don't know why it ever happened, but that quote we've got there with First Peter 2, 2, mm-hmm. in, the, in the dialogue of the Greek text, that he may grow thereby unto salvation. Okay. And that adds up, we, know, we know that, but it's not... Mm. They don't print it in the AV, for, I don't know for what reason, but... Mm. It shows you the value of it, doesn't it? That's right. And it's, we, we have to desire that. Mm. And it's a beautiful quote. That's right, it is. Yeah. And so there is that connection that we have to have with our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we're looking at this tonight. We want to identify with him in a, in a very real sense. Um, let's go over to our reading then from Isaiah chapter 9. Of course, there's a, a, a few sections we need to look at this evening. Um, Isaiah 9 that we've read together, we're just going to focus on um, verse 6 and 7 here. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Uh, And we focus here that we are the recipients. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. From the very beginning of his life, his birth from that very beginning. Our hope was set before us, as, as Brother Ben dealt with, didn't he, a few, a few Sundays ago. Birth, death and resurrection, which is most important. Well, they, they all have their part to play, don't they, in, in, in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to identify with all of them in some way and, and be excited and encouraged by them in some way. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Okay. Let's go over. Sorry. Good. All right, wonderful, extraordinary, hard-to-understand thing. Counselor, to advise or resolve, almost like a reconciler. And I guess in a sense, this this was born out a little of um, Brother Andrew's exhortation on Sunday, isn't it? Uh, The way that God has brought about our salvation isn't quite the way we would have probably all done it. Uh, but it's the way that God has done it. And that's what's so great about this, isn't it? That it's not man's doing, it's God's doing. 
And it's an extraordinary thing. It is hard to be understood, but it is wonderful that he would be the one that would reconcile. And some translations put that together, wonderful counsellor. So that in, in the AV here, we seem to maybe have them as two separate words, don't we? Wonderful counsellor. And I guess when you sing along with the Messiah, it sort of perpetuates that a bit, doesn't it? Um, but, but in some versions, it puts wonderful counsellor together as though they go hand in hand. That, that, that great way that God has brought about resolution and will continue to do so in the kingdom age with the nations. Of course, we have that context there of the government being on his shoulders. He's described as the mighty God, or Gibor Ale, the powerful mighty one. You know, we, we, we might have chosen one of the words bearing the title of Ale, okay, the, the mighty one. But, but God doesn't. He, he, he adds in that dimension of Gibor, a powerful mighty one. And when we see that, and the Lord Jesus Christ bearing that title, we understand the might and power of God revealed through him in the capacity to achieve what God has promised, not only with the world, but with us as individuals. The power to save. And what has been achieved through the life, death and resurrection has the capacity for all of us to be saved. We need not worry about God's capacity to save us through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can have every confidence that it can be done. We should never limit the power of God and really that seems to be emphasised there, doesn't it? He's described as the everlasting Father. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hold your hand here because we're obviously going to come back. Well, I hope it's obvious. Hebrews chapter 2. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily... He took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succour them that are tempted." And so the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is described here, isn't he? That he is the one that would be the deliverer. And we can see there in verse 13 that we are described there as the children. The children which God hath given me. And so in a sense the Lord Jesus Christ is a, is a father to us. He takes on a father role as well as a brother role, doesn't he? But he is representing God, isn't he? Uh, have we ever thought of the Lord Jesus Christ in that sense as well? I 
And so as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. And so he took responsibility, didn't he? Like a, like a father may do so. And it was for the eternal purpose of the Lord, of, of Almighty God that he did that. In Isaiah, he is described as the Prince of Peace. I've got there Ephesians chapter 2. If we just have a, a quick look at that. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity or the conflict thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. And so, yes, the Lord Jesus Christ will a prince of, be a prince of peace in that peace will reign on the earth. But, but how much more powerful is that aspect of peace when we think about it in our own lives? When that enmity is taken away between us and God through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how much we personally then identify with the peacemaking ability of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7 we, we have that promise of the increase of his government and, and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it. And so we can see quite clearly there, can't we, that the Lord Jesus Christ is connected with the promises made to David. To establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, for even forever. For the zeal, the zeal of Yahweh of armies will perform this. Okay. The zeal of Yahweh. Now, I've missed a slide here because my computer crashed the other day in, in the middle of doing putting this together and um, there's a slide that I must have inserted at the time that got lost. But... The zeal there, the word zeal there means jealousy. And we know in scripture that it says that our God is a jealous God because he wants that, that, that close relationship with us. And, and that, that statement is made of God because the people following other gods. So I don't want that sort of relationship with you. And it's the same for us. God doesn't want us to be passionate about the things of the world and maybe just come along here because we feel we ought to occasionally. God wants a close relationship with each and every one of us and we should want a relationship with him. And when we appreciate what has been done for us, the love of God towards us, the love of our Lord Jesus Christ towards us, Surely that's a driving force within us to bring us closer to God. Our God is passionate about our salvation. He's not disconnected, really. That's what that statement is saying to us at the end of verse 7. Okay, let's go over a couple of pages to Isaiah chapter 11. Now, we're not going to look at this in its entirety. We're going to look at a fair bit of this next time when we look at the kingdom through Isaiah. 
So we're just focusing on the aspects to do particularly with the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And we've got there in the opening three verses, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So we've got a connection again with David that we just talked about. And says that the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. Okay. Let's just look at those um, opening um, thoughts there. Um, the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. Let's go over to John chapter 3 and verse 34. So in John chapter 3, For he whom God hath sent speaketh, the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. They didn't just give him a little bit of Spirit as such. The, the Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth in him. And so the extent to which we understand the capacity of God in entrusting everything into the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we believe that, if we believe that these things have been entrusted to him and that our salvation is absolutely dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ and his birth, death and resurrection. If we believe that, there is a statement of fact there, isn't there, in verse 36. The person that believes that has eternal life. And the person that doesn't believe it, doesn't. It's fairly simple, isn't it? We need to believe in God's capacity to save us through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and the fact that God has bestowed his spirit on the Lord Jesus Christ through the avenues of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might and the knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. Okay, so let's with that in mind go over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 and verse 15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the, in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of his glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards usward who believe according to the work, working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. 
and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things, the ecclesia, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And as we read those words, brethren and sisters and young people, did you notice that as our Lord Jesus Christ was endowed with the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the counsel and might and the knowledge and fear of Yahweh, that, that we've been given the same things in verse 17. The God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. We've been given the, the knowledge of him. We've been given the, the eyes of understanding, being enlightened, that we might know what is the hope of his glory and the riches of, sorry, hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We've been blessed with that, that same knowledge. We've been given the word, haven't we? And it can guide our lives. It can influence us as it influenced our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that our Lord was blessed with the capacity to know what was in the heart of man. It's something that we don't have, isn't it? We, we know what's in our own hearts, don't we? we? If we're honest with ourselves, that is. If we don't delude ourselves... We try to think we know what's going on in other people's hearts sometimes, don't we? But that's not really what we're asked to do. That's the role of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Okay, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 to 12. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness." giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And so, Paul writing to the Colossians again emphasises that, doesn't it? That we have been blessed with these things as well. God has bestowed them upon us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 11, um, verse 3 and 4. And um, it, it's really talking here about the way that our Lord Jesus Christ will um, judge equitably. Um, it says, Make him of quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove, after the hearing of his ears. And of course, probably that's the only way, if we were in a court of law, so what did you see and what did you hear, generally, isn't it? That's the evidence that takes place and that's upon which that judgment takes place. And you get a number of witnesses to make sure, did they all see and hear the same thing? To make sure they all collaborate together to or corroborate to make sure that the evidence is sure. But of course, here we're told that that's not the basis of judgment that our Lord uses. The basis of judgment is with righteousness. According to what God says, not according to our personal feelings of what we see and what we hear. Uh, God's measure, what he, what he says is right, what God has said, that's the basis of judgment. And with that, he will judge the poor 
or make sure the poor are justly dealt with. As we talked about at the beginning of our last session, that was the problem with the people of the time, that they were focused on all the sacrifices and offerings and they weren't thinking about the widows and the fatherless in their need, those that were the poor in society, the ones that needed the care of the people to think about their needs. To reprove with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And that's the justice of the rulership of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got Isaiah chapter 6 there, verse 6 to 10, which is just a few pages back. Um, it's, it's that vision we looked at last time, the vision of the seraphim. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongues of the altar, laid it upon my mouth, and lo, this hath touched my lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. And also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. And see, that particular section there is one of the most quoted sections from Isaiah in the, in the New Testament because it was talking about the people of the time, that, that God would close up their eyes and their ears. And it's in the context um, also of talking, speaking in parables, okay, that we are blessed with that, that understanding. All right, so that's the irony, isn't it, there, that, that we see here. That, that they were doing it based on just their eyes and their, their um, ears. But it needs to be based on God's righteousness. And that's what the people of the time, the rulership in Christ's time, had lost sight of, the righteousness of God, what God was achieving through his son. And God said, well, if that's where you're going to be, if that's going to be your attitude, then I'm going to close those things off from you. There is no hope if that's the only basis upon which you will receive the message. Okay. Sorry, I've got, that's why I had contrast there for Isaiah 6. I was talking about a slide that I hadn't got up there. All right, so that was the contrast there in Isaiah chapter 6. Okay. Did that make sense to everyone, that bit there? No? Yeah, yeah? it did? Good, right. <laughs> All right. That puts everyone on the spot, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 20. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And he will, I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle. And I will commit thy government into his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. And he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issue and all vessels of small quantity from the vessels of cups even to all the vessels of flagons. In that day, saith Yahweh army, shall the nail that is fastened in the shore place be removed and cut down and fall, and the burden that was upon it shall be cut off, for Yahweh hath spoken it. And so we've got these words here, and they're talking about Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. 
And these things would happen to him. But when we read those things, it's very much the language of um, the saviour that would come, isn't it? The one that would rule, that he would be clothed in the garments of honour. And so it really, in a sense, takes our minds to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as we read it there together, I think. Do you think so? All right, that language there, yeah? So then we say, well, what's, who's this Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah? What's he got to do with it? Because it sort of is a bit confusing. Um, the, the word or the name Eliakim means um, God raises or God sets up. And Hilkiah is the portion of Yah. So, so we have this man who is the one God raises up. And he is of the portion of Yahweh. So suddenly the, the, the person's names make us transport our minds to the Lord Jesus Christ, don't they? Because he was the one raised up of God. He was of the portion of God. He was the son of God. And so we can see there that he was um, clothed in this way. He had the key of the house of of David, key of the house of David. And so we've got here, just just follow that through it, just in a couple of places, in, in Matthew chapter 16. And verse 17. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed, talking to Peter, of course, blessed art thou, Simon Barjana, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Peter's given the keys, isn't he? It's not the keys to hell, is it? Not the keys to purgatory or life, is it? The pearly gates that Peter unlocks and lets everyone through, as some religions may have us understand. So what are these? These keys are described as the keys of the kingdom of heaven, aren't they? So let's go over to Revelation chapter 3 to help us a little more. Revelation chapter 3, which is, of course, the letters to the seven ecclesias. And we're talking here to the ecclesia at um, Philadelphia. It would help if I was in Revelation, wouldn't it? Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the ecclesia in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength and has kept my word, and has not denied my name. And so here we have, don't we, the, the angel speaking these words. The, the, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ revealed to John, to the ecclesias in, um, in the last days. And John is revealing these words from the Lord Jesus Christ. He that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth that no man openeth. So it has the capacity to open doors, doesn't it? The message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, that's those same keys were given to Peter because it was the gospel message, wasn't it? The gospel message, that is the key that opens 
the door to our salvation. And that's the message of Isaiah, isn't it, that we are looking at. It is our salvation through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the things of the Lord Jesus Christ and the things to do with the kingdom of God. And so the Lord Jesus Christ has been entrusted with those things. In Isaiah chapter 22, it was also described with Eliakim that um, he would be fastened as a nail in a sure place. Now, now my mind went to the... um, the faithful servant under the law um, in Exodus chapter 21, when, when he loved his master and he didn't want to go free, he said he wanted to serve his master and his master would take his servant and pierce his through, ear through to the doorpost. And it became a symbol, a symbol of the connection between the servant who loved his master and the master who valued his servant, and they became bonded together. And and that was demonstrated in the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ in submitting to the will of his Father. And we're going to look at the principles of servantship in um, our talk in a couple of classes' time, but that's linked to that. And and I think there's a powerful thought there. So if you want to take a note of those two, because time's racing by... um, and have a look at that in your own time. Okay, let's go over to Isaiah chapter 42. So in Isaiah chapter 42, um, we're going to have a look at this one again in the context of the servants. So, I'm not going to look at this in a lot of detail tonight, but we say, Behold my servant who I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I put my spirit upon him and shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. And, and really what we just want to take out of this, that the hope here has a Gentile element. And that's the hope that we all enjoy as well. Um, what else do we need to deal with here? His role is to open the eyes of the blind, and we see that in verse, um, we'll read verse 6 and 7. I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles to open the blind eyes to bring out the prisoners from prison and them them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am Yahweh and that is my name and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. And so these things we just highlight again are being based on, um, on the principles of righteousness. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ um, read these words, didn't he? And it's recorded in Luke chapter 4 that the Lord Jesus Christ opened and read these words. And it was his role, it was his purpose to open the blind eyes and to bring out the prisoners from prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house, those that were enslaved to the things of that day. And that was the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, Isaiah chapter 52. We know Isaiah 53. We often quote from it, but it's led into from the end of chapter 52. Just read together verse 13 onwards. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And many were astonished at thee. His visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations and the kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which hath not been told them they shall see and that which they shall had not heard shall they consider. 
And so we get there the sense in verse 15 that the kings of the earth will just be silenced as they are told about things which they've never heard, as they see things happening which they have never seen before. From a man, it's described, as his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Um, where are we? Yeah, sorry, Dave. <laughs> Hopefully you're going better on there than I am. <laughs> right, OK. In the ESV, it has there, uh, for verse 14... As many were as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Or just for what it's worth, the contemporary English version, but it sort of puts an emphasis here. Many were horrified at what happened to him. But everyone who saw him was even more horrified because he suffered until he no longer looked human. Have we thought about the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ in that way? It can be somewhat clinical when we think about or read about it, that yes, he had a crown of thorns placed on his head and he was whipped and... He was hung on a tree. Yes, that's all pretty ghastly, isn't it? But the, the language here gives us an insight to what our Lord really experienced. And the powerful thing is that our Lord read that and he knew that. He read it and he knew it. No wonder in that garden his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood. And yet so strong was his love for us and for his father that he continued on, submitting to what needed to be done for our salvation. And so we move on to Isaiah 53. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed? And so our Lord is described as, as an extension of God, isn't he? The arm of Yahweh, the son of the right hand. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. And we've talked about that already, haven't we? The, the development of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, he wasn't grown, he wasn't born a grown man and had it all together and was equipped from day one. He developed as a tender plant, taking in the nutrition that was there for him. And he grew up out of a dry ground. He had no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. As I was preparing these talks, um, I came across a video on YouTube where a, a Christian Jew was going to various Jews around Jerusalem and asking them if they've ever read this, cha this chapter of Isaiah, which they hadn't because evidently the Jews don't read this chapter in the synagogues. Uh, and they read this and they understood what it was really saying, the impact of it. Of course, this is looking at it from almost a... It is from a Jewish perspective, isn't it? Uh, because the Jews turned their way, eyes away, didn't they, from the Messiah. They didn't esteem him as value to them. But in verse 4, surely he hath 
borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. And that was the people of the time, wasn't it? That's how they saw him. There he is, bearing their griefs and carrying their sorrows. And yet they saw him as smitten of God. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. Little comparison there, putting that in, in a tabular form, if you like. Um, he was wounded or, or pierced. That's what, the real word, that's what the word means there. So it's not a wound. He was pierced for our transgressions. And the, the piercing there, let's just quickly turn up John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already and break not his legs, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith they came out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and the record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that he, ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. And another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Of course, that links through to, to Zechariah, doesn't it? To that time when they will look on him who they pierced and understand that he was the Messiah, the anointed one. But he wasn't the Messiah that they were looking for at the time. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. So see, the language is, is even more than we probably get the sense of there. Uh, and the word crushed there, well, I've got there, Genesis 3.15. I think we all probably understand that. We don't need to go back there, do we? That's what the Lord Jesus Christ came for, wasn't it? He was promised from the, the very beginning that he would crush the effects of sin. That was what he did. And he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace. And he was chastened. But it brings our peace. By his strokes or the wounds or the wheels, that was the intense bruising, that blackness and blueness together, by that, we are healed. And there's a quote in Proverbs that talks about it in that way as well. The blueness of the wound is a healing thing. Or we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and Yahweh hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. We've, I guess a lot of us have taken an interest in shearing with um, Brother Max having come into our community and we've been blessed to see that time of shearing and sometimes you'll see the sheep that rides but you'll see the times where the shearer is there at one with the animal and, and they do become subdued as they shear that sheep and our Lord Jesus Christ certainly wasn't that writhing sheep he was the one that was quiet and subdued and submitted to what was to to take place and he was taken from prison, from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off 
out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Or stroke, as the margin says there, the stroke upon him. He submitted, he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it, please, we just want to focus on this verse here. Yet it pleased Yahweh to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. Let's call that from the ESV. Yet it was the will of Yahweh. It was a pleasure, so to speak. It was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. It is or was the will of God. And that will has, 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 has had its outworking in our lives. Um, yeah, let's quickly go over to First of John chapter 4 here. First of John chapter 4, verse 9 to 10. In this was manifested the love of God towards us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the mercy seat, the reconciling power for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And that's the, the, the will of God, isn't it? Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10, and verse 9. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, the first covenant, that he might establish the second. What could not be achieved under the law was achieved in Christ, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that were sanctified. Whereof the Holy Spirit also is witness to us, for after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put away my laws into the sorry, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering of sin. And that's what God wants, isn't it? That these things to be in our hearts and in our minds not just the enactment of sacrifices which the people had been caught up in, in our hearts and in our minds, an understanding that our sins and iniquities will be remembered no more. That's what was achieved in all of this, and that was the will of God. And that's the magnitude of what's been done, and that's why God submitted his son to that. And verse 11 from Isaiah 53, from the ESV, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, 
and he shall bear their iniquities. And we don't need to go that. Romans chapter 5, the principle of justification, to be made right. And that's what was achieved in this, that God would account righteousness to the believers. That's what verse 11 says there in, in um, Isaiah chapter 53. And so, in conclusion, Isaiah chapter 61. And we're not going to do any more than read what is written there. For the Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me, because Yahweh hath, it's God doing this, anointed me, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Messiah, to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh, the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh. Again, an echo back to Andrew's exhortation, isn't it, in, in, um, on Sunday, that the principles of God's righteousness, and we are all born out of that. We are the planting of Yahweh. God has planted us. He wants us in the kingdom that he might be glorified. And that's the purpose of God, isn't it? That God's glory fills the earth. And so really that the sentiments of Isaiah 61, everything that God has sent his son for, anointed him as the Messiah to do, is about the glory of God. And so that must be a driving force for all of us in our lives, a motivating force.